Welcome to Short Ends Podcast. Hey, Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for sitting down with me today. Uh, thanks. It's great to be here. So I want to jump right in. You're, the film you just finished, congratulations, Santa in Training. Thank you. This is an awesome film. Uh, this is your second feature, right? That's correct, yeah. For anybody listening, can you give a little background on the film, a little synopsis of what it's about? Uh, sure. So the premise of the film is that every 30 years there's a new Santa picked, mm-hmm. and this this is that year. And the head elf uh, really wants the job, but he gets passed over. So he's so mad about getting passed over, he switches the files and finds the most bah humbug person <laughs> he could possibly find and, uh, and, and gets them to, to start the training. And he gets the two, like, dumbest elves from the North Pole to go to Miami uh, to train them. Uh, to train this guy so he is very uh you know resilient at first and then of course as any good christmas movie is he should he finds the christmas spirit and um and does a great job that's awesome um i wanted to ask you about that any great christmas movies that is christmas particularly meaningful to you because i remember even when i was younger and we had first met you lent me eddie murphy's trading places which is also a christmas movie that's right. Well, it, it all depends. Some people, I think, wouldn't consider it a Christmas movie, but right. and still, and still to this day, uh, and it's funny that you said that. Uh, still to this day, that is my number one uh, Christmas movie. I watch it every single Christmas. I have like three copies of it. I have like one at my sister's, one at my parents'. Um, I have one just in case, like you know, it gets lost or forgotten during the holidays. There is a copy available to be watched. So. It is by far my favorite, and you know, funny going into Santa and training, I really hadn't thought that much about it. I mean, Christmas, to on your point, like a Christmas movie was not definitely something I was just like, oh my god, I, my life's goal is to make a Christmas movie. Okay, um, for sure. But you know, the the producers of the project uh, had presented me with the opportunity, and I'd read the original script. Um, and then we'd, we'd gotten some other kind of writers to work on it. And then I did a a rewrite and it was fun and I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity. And, um, it was definitely different, you know, it Mm -hmm. wasn't like the, the Hallmark kind of Christmas movie. And I think that, you know, I, because, you know, it was a very low budget film. I had to think outside the box and I had that ability to kind of like do, uh, do things a little differently. You just said when the producers uh, gave you the script, how did you come into this movie? Um, so the one of the producers uh, was also the distributor of my last film, mm-hmm. uh, which was which was super super small movie. Um, it was like you know two hundred thousand dollar movie, super small. Uh, he really liked the work I did. I mean, he made a ton of money because the margins. You know, if you can sell a two hundred thousand dollar movie, um, marginally speaking, like your your profit is probably going to be pretty big rather than making a five million dollar movie. Right. Um, where you're not going to see as much in return. So, and so he felt that, you know, that he liked my work and he, and he knew, you know, the, the work that I did gave him confidence um, and, and someone's ability to finish things. He'd worked with other directors and, and other projects that just seemed to take like years uh, to finish. And he really didn't think that first they were that talented or really knew what they were doing for the most part. Um, so, and then, you know, he just thought, he just like he just loved my work and he just had confidence that I was going to get the movie done and I was going to care about the movie. Are these producers are they associated with Swen Studios? Uh that's right. Okay, can you talk a little bit about Swen? Um I don't know them. Uh so Swen is traditionally a um a distribution company. Okay. Uh, Swen Swen Group would be the distribution company and they pretty much um <clears throat> I mean they they don't do any really domestic distribution. It's mostly international. They um 
they have a big kind of like footing in South America. Okay. Uh, they're like the number one distribution company for South America acquisitions. So if you're trying to get something on TV in Brazil, you probably have to go through them. Um, at some point and so they had been spending you know years uh, it's a it's you know the company's been around for a long time and they've been just buying assets and then and then getting them out there uh worldwide um so one of the one of the the president of the company decided he's like you know i spend so much money uh buying stuff and he's just like the the filmmakers seem to be making you know all the money and for him, like he made money, they made money. I mean, they make good money, but you know, when they, they were just looking at like, you know, what, what I paid this person for it is like, what if I didn't have to pay that? And, and then now it's like, if I produce the films myself, um, and I already have the ability and the, the network in order to sell them. Um, I think that they quickly figured out that it, it's a little bit more difficult, uh, than they initially anticipated, um, to make, to make movies. Gotcha, yeah. And you're a writer on this film, too. You're not just a director for hire coming in and doing somebody else's script completely, right? Right, but originally that wasn't the case. Okay. Originally it was just kind of director for hire, and and when I got brought on, I was just like, you know, I'd love to do the final rewrite. And so we'd gotten, um, before I touched it, uh, we'd gotten this guy, Michael Fuchs, uh, who's the creator of Robot Chicken, okay. uh, mm-hmm. to, do, to do a pass at it. And then after he did a pass, um, you know, and this was with some notes from me, and then I did I did a pass after that. Okay. So I did the fi- the very final, final rewrite, which a lot of it was like, you know, I'd rewritten the last like 30 pages completely from scratch, mm-hmm. uh, changed a few things out, cut those things out. But a lot of it, uh, a lot of my rewrite was just kind of like infusing uh, the tone that I wanted to go for. Okay. Um, and just kind of like little details of, of some, you know, visual aesthetic things uh, just, you know, to help out everyone to understand, kind of get a better understanding of what I was going for because it was kind of, you know, it was kind of definitely outside the box and I would definitely get a lot of questions of like, well, wait, you know, like, what do you mean? This is a Christmas movie. You want to do what? And, and so I wanted to try to translate that as best as possible to everyone involved. So we could be on the, the same page as, as early as possible in the process. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I see your stamp on it, uh, you know, absolutely. But also it's very different from your other films, which tend to be uh, gritty or something like Danny Boy or something like that. It's definitely a, a change in direction from your previous work. Sure. Well, you know, the last thing that I really kind of did, well, yeah, most, most of my original stuff was always kind of much more dramatic. Even mm-hmm. Danny Boy is like, there's some definitely a lot of good comedic elements in it. Yeah, um, that's true, yeah. But and then I went and made this short that I just kind of you know wrote uh, a few years back, like on on the subway, just uh, like sparked of idea and just kind of wrote this thing called "I Love New York," and it was definitely much more of a straightforward comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so and that seemed to be my most successful short film that I ever made. And that film was like you know I made it for like two thousand dollars. It was like you know super kind of like run and gunny around New York. And and it, and yeah, it did really well. So I was like, you know, maybe I have much a much more knack for comedy than I really ever thought. So I was definitely trying to like you know infuse more of that into my work. And I still love the you know the dramedy nature of things. And that was another thing with Santa when I did the rewrite. It was definitely trying to bring more heart and like true essence of like emotional story to it, and not because there was so much so much comedy happening like every second that I was just kind of like this needs to slow down a little bit gotcha yeah with Swen Studios distributing in like Brazil South America 
Um, is that where the choice of the Hispanic Santa comes from? That That's part of it, for sure, because okay. it definitely helps with that market, um, absolutely. But they also have, I mean, at, at, as, at this moment, uh, one of the bigger sales for the project is uh, Paramount, like International. Okay. So Paramount is a streaming app um, that's much more popular overseas. They don't really, I don't think they really push it or it might not even be available uh, domestically because they just don't want to compete. And so that's, and that's kind of like, that's not just focused on South America. I mean, they, they do that. That's available kind of like globally, um, on their streaming platform. Okay. I see. I see. When I watched the movie also, I mean, maybe I read into this too much, but I kind of, uh, saw Santa as this almost universal figure. Um, and with everything politically happening in the United States with immigration and all of that, I thought also, uh, the choice of this Hispanic Santa kind of talk to, to that uh, part politically uh it sure yeah it definitely does it definitely does absolutely and and that was like you know i had added in on my past there's the the bit about the world santas yeah yeah you know and like the way that all those kind of whip hands went to all these different kind of people and it's funny because some people are just kind of like well you're not like you don't really care that much about being too pc uh you know, are you? And I'm just like, well, actually, if you look at it, I feel like I'm being more PC because I'm being more inclusive. And like, so yes, too. yeah. And I'm like, yes, I'm like, listen, I'm like, I understand that like representation of these different cultures is definitely stereotypical, yeah, for sure. But it's still inclusive of everybody. So you're just not thinking of Santa as just always been and always will be just some white guy. It's a comedy too. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, totally. And like, I, li- I listen. I mean, like, when I need a good laugh, I literally will just think of like Jewish Santa, right. you know, like for myself personally. Uh, and I th- and I think that thing is hysterical, you know, yeah. the Jewish Santa. Definitely. Um, can we talk a little bit about the tech of the film? Uh, did you shoot this film digitally? It was digital. Yeah, we shot on um, uh, an Ari Alexa Mini. Okay. Um, and you know, we, we wanted to to be a little bit more bold lens wise, but you know, the, the, the budget, it was difficult to kind of get some of the glass that we really wanted to play around with. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially too trying to do a lot of, you know, this kind of like push-ins and, and dutching like on push-ins and all this type of stuff was also like very difficult to achieve on a very tight budget and very small amount of time. So I really had to go in being ultra specific to everything uh, that I wanted to do all the time. And also, but also being open and, and you know, to uh, to what's happening with the, the characters and with the actors mm-hmm. on set. And, and which can be, I think, a very difficult thing to do when you're trying to be extremely specific visually. And, and then, you know, you see that like, oh, this performance is not doing what I intended it to do or, or there's something really interesting here, but I have to change the way that the dynamics of the blocking or the, you know, just the character dynamics work in order to achieve it. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of, and then you end up having to throw some of your things out the window. So that's why a lot of time in prep, um, I tend to like focus more on uh, visual language instead of like, shot list or any of these type of things like I'm always very specific about transitional points uh, but when it comes to like in a scene itself like you know I'll, I, when my DP came on like we discussed some like ideas and, and he wanted to be more specific but you know I really I told him was that I wanted to be more open I knew things would kind of change the space the, the reality the time um, so if there was a, a language that we always kind of you know hit at then when like the 
uh, when the performances changed or I changed the blocking that was like a, a non-intended, you know, factor, especially in some of the scenes are, you know, five pages long. Mm-hmm. So trying to incorporate as much kind of movement with the characters and, and the camera moving as much as possible through some of this stuff. Um, sometimes, yeah. I mean, I think if you like, if you overthink it from the beginning and then you're just trying to, you're forcing everything into a box to try to get this plan. You know, I had a career as an AD and I'd see, you know, just like these giant boards of, of, of these storyboards. And it's just kind of like trying to hit every single one and forcing people in a box and you can feel it, you know, you can, and especially when I see a, a movie that's just like a massive amount of CGI and people have to imagine all these circumstances and there's tons of action going on and all these shots, you know, some of them are on location. Some of the shots are on a green screen. Some of them are with a stunt double and you're putting all these things together and you, and you feel it all held back, you know, because of it's hard to imagine these circumstances or see the thing that they're going to put in later. Or even the, the, the world that you're sitting in is like, they're going to put in later and it's, and it's difficult, you know, having the ability to interact with things and keeping the mechanical as as far out of the process as possible. So there's just a basis of reality um, for the actors to be able to work with and for me to be able to work with too. Like I wanna see it, I wanna feel it, I wanna be in the moment. I consider myself, you know, in that I'm like, I like to keep things hot for the actors, like Mm -hmm. keep them emotionally charged in there. And I think I need the same thing. Definitely. In in terms of CGI and all that, also, I personally could never really imagine working that way. Um, And such an important part of filmmaking to me is the organic nature of it and being able to interact with the actors and the set um, and all those real world aspects. Yeah, I mean, that's why I like, uh, you know, when I think of like James Cameron doing Avatar and it's just kind of like he waited till he had the technology to be able to see this real time rendering of these people in this world. And like, yeah, maybe it didn't help the actors too much, but it definitely helped him. And I can understand like why he'd want that. He'd want to see. And then, of course, you know, someone like him, I'm sure they trust him with everything. So then he can give much better direction because of seeing the way that they're interacting in the world itself in real time. So how much of your film was storyboarded, taken directly from the script, um, and how much of it was more organic? How much of it uh, did you have some room for improv and things like that? Um, I did have room for improv, but uh, we didn't do too much of it mm-hmm. um, at all. I mean, there's some there's some little bits. Also, improv for, for some actors, I think, is a very difficult thing. And, and I know that the, the lead, he really kind of was more about sticking to the script um for things we played around a little bit uh the slippy character uh did some improv there's moments when they're yell when they're yelling at him on the obstacle course i had all that improv like all of that going around was completely improv um you know but you know so, some i mean some little things some actions you know we'd we'd discover something interesting especially mm-hmm. like when he's walking along the street um you know, after getting served the divorce papers, yep, yep. Uh, you know, for there, like there were some of those kind of actions that were improv, but I mean, most of it was really, really thought out. Um, I think the, the amount of destruction when he rips apart his apartment was a little, little improv, mm-hmm. you know, I'd, a- I'd really asked him to go for it and he, <laughs> and he like really went for it into like a scary nature. Um, <laughs> And so, and but I, we had to cut, and I was just like, "You got to calm down a little bit here." And um, uh, so, but you know, it's like you know, they're all, they're all going to take like you know particular liberties with things. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, for the most part, it was just kind of like right to the script. I think there was too much uh, going on, and and I, I think that they they you know they came into the process too late to really kind of like build a that type of awareness in order to kind of go to that place of improvisation you know for those characters yeah what do you mean that they came in too late just that the actors didn't know each other very long beforehand yeah i mean no i i had worked with the guy slippy uh okay. played slippy it's uh carson and um carson roland he's a great actor i'd worked with him before so he was the first person i'd got him on on like very early um in the process and i had had a lot of conversations with him about the character so he constantly would have you know ideas and and bring things up uh, all the time but we also had a lot of these conversations beforehand and i like to do that you know it's like i don't want to wait till the day if, and also i don't like i'm not huge huge on rehearsing some certain things it's really important mm-hmm. um but when i'm rehearsing it's really just trying to get people to understand the character because if they really really get the character then they can they can do a lot of different things and carson was able to kind of do that and you know and he's like you know, one thing that he came up with, he's just like, well, his name is Slippy. He should just everywhere he goes, he should slip like on things as much as possible. Yeah, right. So he tried to he tried to incorporate that, you know, whenever he whenever the opportunity was there, uh, you know, which was great. So it's like little actions like that. And and then we would just build off of things in the script that were kind of like guidelines and and you know things that came up here and there and he's just like oh let's bring this up again let's like follow this idea through in this other scene you know he says this line here what if it's a through line uh through everything so we had like you know he had said pathetic in the script like once and then we just had him start saying pathetic to him all the time uh which we just thought was hysterical and then even like little bits he takes like the the sticky note on the fridge and i told the props person was like hey let's write pathetic on this one and you know and just kept on going with that so we're just bouncing off each other uh, which was a lot of fun. Very cool. Um, in terms of the sets, you have some great locations. You mentioned the obstacle course, um, Santa's workshop stood out to me, and then also the museum and the aquarium. Um, how did you get these locations? Uh, so I ended up befriending um, a guy who was a uh, an ex, I think he was the uh, assistant um, or attorney, uh, what is it? Assistant governor, attorney governor mm-hmm. of Florida. Okay. And so, and so when he worked uh, in that position, he had helped get that museum built. Um, and so he, I, I'd contacted him, and I'd already, we'd already talked to the museum, but it was at a price that uh, the producer didn't want to pay for mm-hmm. at all. And but I had felt that, and and he was trying to, they were trying to suggest other places that could be really fun for the montage thing. But one of the things that I incorporated into the script was, you know, the the backstories of the characters that weren't originally there. Mm-hmm. And for Eddie, it was just like, what if, you know, when he was a kid in the beginning, a lot of these are just like subtle details, which I feel like really do impact the audience subconsciously. And and so when he was a kid, he wanted to be like a pilot. And so in the in the prologue scene in in the opening, he um there's all these like airplanes and model airplanes all over his room and this type of stuff. And when we first meet him in real time, uh, he's got like a bomber jacket that he's like, that he's using as a blanket to sleep. Um, so, so there's all these little things. And I was just like, well, okay, if there's always that, and then like, let's say that his daughter wanted to be an astronaut. Mm -hmm. Um, so I put her in the astronaut helmet and then the, the stars, I incorporated stars throughout. I mean, every single scene that we shot, I had a visual effects person that was exterior or on a window 
window was just like I want star reflections on the glass and then like can you replace the sky with like a more kind of clear starry sky that you know wouldn't exist in a city scenario Mm -hmm. to just kind of give it this idea of you know like there's another place and and so I felt like at the end um, you know when she gets on the sled with him uh, you know, she's kind of getting her wish, you know what I mean, of being able to kind of like almost go to space, yeah, yeah uh, exactly. you know, flying around. And he gets his wish, too, of like wanting to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, these were like, you know, the, just the, the small details that I felt um, really helped the characters emotionally kind of like ring true. Uh, so the so I had to the, that museum was a science museum and it had a planetarium and had all this stuff and I felt that these particular things were really important and like a zoo just didn't play true to the characters right, and what yeah. they wanted and what their interests were so uh, but the the uh, lieutenant governor um, he helped us get it at, at a very reasonable price. Um, so we we're able to do it and the aquarium aspects I mean it's a really pretty location and it definitely adds a lot to the movie yeah it adds a lot of value I love that shot um, and then you mentioned the stars outside the window and the effects that kind of thing you also had similar effects in the music video you made Casanova uh, yeah so actually it's funny um, uh, for Casanova I had kind of I had developed that because I wanted to make that music video that was it represented not just the song but the artist personally okay and she had some like fun quirky things in in some of her other work and she's just like that as a person and so I came up with that idea for that music video and what ended up happening of course like you, you can never connect the dots going looking forward but that ended up that music video I think ended up becoming a testing ground for for this film I had kind of discovered a lot of little things about doing that kind of work and then when I when this film came I was just like well I don't want a cheap looking, you know, North Pole exterior and what's a nostalgic thing is like stop motion and classic Christmas films. And I was just like, so I think it'd be a lot more fun. It would definitely save a lot of money and it would like heighten the value because it would look, it would be, we'd be able to be intentional and see that idea throughout to its like highest ability possible rather than having a cheap version of something we truly can't afford. Definitely. And I love that it goes back to those classic Christmas movies like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and all those classic stop motion, uh, you know, films from the, the 70s. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that was like, you know, the, so that was the idea. And it was really great to be able to, like, see it through completely. Um, you know, I think that the I think that the some of the producers still weren't 100 percent clear on what that thing was but when later when they're just like you know we had to put in this uh the stop motion world outside the windows of the workshop and there's like you know 68 shots that see the windows um i don't think they were very happy about that much work (laughs) and i was just like well you know it's just like it it's this is going to be better than that and i had taken on you know to alleviate this you know i i had done a lot of the uh the animated assets i'd created myself wow and some of the things I'd animated myself, uh, some of them I'd given to animators to animate, mm-hmm. and then and then we had we had given them, and then I'd given a lot of these things that I animated to some compositors to kind of like put in um, and put into the world. So, but yeah, every single one of the pieces was uniquely created by myself, and I had cut out. It was something like eight hundred. Uh, 876 unique assets that I that I hand cut painted 
um, and designed. And I photographed, uh, yeah, all these. And so there was, there was almost 900. And some of these photographs had multiple pieces in them because mm-hmm. they were just very small. So and then we're able to kind of just, you know, put them together and animate them. Some of the stuff I did some traditional kind of stop motion, but not too much. Or I did it like digitally, but it was still just as grueling digitally. I mean, some of the animators, they did, you know, a fake stop motion for it. Um, some of the stuff and, and I became really picky on the aesthetic, you know, that I'm like, you need to, it needs to be jittier and, and kind of like, you need to shit it up pretty much, you know, it's like, I want it to be not perfect. And, yeah, yeah. and so when I did my own personal, when I did the, the stuff that I was animating myself, I had, I'd literally taken it digitally, it taken like three frames and then moved it and then three frames, then moved it. So I did it just as I would have, uh, doing the, doing the stop motion by hand. The only reason I chose to do it in computer, because I wasn't sure how they were always going to operate within the frame, or if I wanted to change something, I can take out a layer, I can do all this stuff, which I would have been limited to that. Um, if I'd done it the other way around. That's awesome. I love seeing the artist's hand physically in the film like that, knowing that, you know, you cut out all the stars and, and created all the ass- assets and everything like that. Um, and then can you, can you talk about the, the tech side of the, of the animation a little more? Cause like you're saying, I think it's interesting what you just said about um, it was as laborious doing it digitally as it would have been doing it by hand in you know, the, in a more uh, old school stop motion fashion. Um, can you talk a little more about like the digital modern side of, of stop motion? Sure. Oh, well, I mean, actually, and also to be honest, I think that it was actually more laborious doing it uh, digitally than I would have because some of the things that I had done uh, traditional stop motion, like the moon in that one sequence. Mm-hmm. So the, the moon asset, I had done the animation traditional style. Um, and but the thing is, I knew what the moon wanted to do, and and it, that thing was like easy. It was easy to lock it in. Um, but that actually went pretty quick in comparison. Okay. Um, because of because the thing is, like you know, if you have good stop motion software and you have your your thing, your whole kind of like studio set up for it, it's kind of like it's one click, move one click, you move the thing, one click, you move the thing, and it can go pretty fast. Yeah. Um, Oh, and when and when Eddie gets wrapped mm-hmm, too, mm-hmm. all of that paper, all that paper crunching and like you know the the ribbon going across and the scissors moving, that was all traditional, uh, true true stop motion, um, and camera, and oh, and we also did some stop motion and camera on the set, so the books, right, the books in the scene that. when she creates it, that we did that that was in camera because I'm like I just don't want the stop motion to be laid over the film. I would like some things within the film itself in real time that we're like you know interacting with to Mm -hmm. actually have some stop motion qualities to them as well so but and then when it became when it came time to do them digitally so i would take the i would take the photograph of the asset um and then i'd photoshop it and then i would bring that kind of like png element of that into either after effects or premiere Mm -hmm. and then i would i would lay it out i would then size it uh, to where I kind of wanted it, like my basic starting point, and then I would I would go forward like three frames, cut, and then move the thing like a tiny bit, and then go forward three frames, cut, and then I would just keep doing that. You gotcha. So it's pretty much the same process as the traditional stop motion, but you're just doing it on the software. Yeah, but the thing is, like, doing it in the software is actually because, like, if I was doing it traditionally with my hand, I can just move something, and also I would also see. I would also, you know, on the screen be able to see the ghosting of what the shot was before 
over it. So I know how much I'd move it or not move it, which doing it digitally, I don't really have that kind of like that full scope view of the whole thing. So there would be times like, you know, when I first started that when I did my first thing, it was like I'd done two frames apart and the thing was like rapid fire. And, and also too, in, in a digital stop motion program, uh, when you're doing them by hand, you can add frames or take away frames with like a simple click. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it's so easy to kind of like make the thing smoother or longer if it's going too fast um because you can just you could just highlight every single shot that you took and and add frames to each one yeah which and then in doing it the other way if things started going too fast i can't do that so i'd have to like go through and like and manually pull out one frame from every single shot to make something kind of go longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one thing that was nice about it was like, because then I could like nest or group like one single asset into something and then and then have that and then also use it over again because now I have this one thing moving. I can use this and put it in something else or I can add different assets to it because now I'd grouped these animations and I could still go in and, and tweak it to however I want, you know, for that particular moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also move it around the frame too because once I group it together and then it's like it turns into its own kind of clip. And so therefore I can move the positioning or the sizing of it. So I took that into consideration after doing a few of these was like, well, you know, the best kind of approach is to just do it full screen, like as large as I possibly can for the animation Mm -hmm. and then shrink it when necessary. Because if I did it too small to kind of match what I, what I felt like, and then if I'm blowing it up and then my resolution started like, you know, lot getting destroyed yeah yeah so there was a lot of trial and error with it and it definitely took i mean it took me five weeks to create all the assets by hand um myself and and this was like a five weeks of 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 me like literally in a room for you know 16 hours a day like doing nothing else but this blacked out windows you know just like with this you know lit overhead camera setup that i had and so, and then this like you know I'm just covered in glue and glitter and like all sorts of other things and and black light paint because and then I took some of the assets afterwards after I had already photographed them and used them mm-hmm. and then I repurposed some of them for the kind of cave sequence that's in the the Nautilus cave I call it in the um in the obstacle course so and then I took black light paint and then I painted over ones that I'd already done. Um, and then took black lights and then photographed them again. Wow. So they'd have this type of look. And this was always kind of like an intentional um, thing from the beginning. I mean, we'd shot the scene with black lights with all these kids of black light paint on their faces. Mm-hmm. And so I was just trying to figure out ways to, you know, I mean, especially after like five weeks and and then still none of the animation was even done at that point. These are just the pieces. I, you know, I realized I'm like, yeah, I could spend, you know, months, uh, you know, making unique things for everything. But I really had to, given like the restraints of deadlines, I really had to figure out ways to kind of like, how do I repurpose a few of these things? Because I just don't have time. And I'd already already done, like I said, almost 900 Wow, yeah. And that way, maybe the deadline is a good thing, so you don't uh, go on forever with it. Um, but it's an incredibly tedious process. Um, I think it paid off in terms of the film. It, when I watched it, I also thought of the old Christmas movies. Um, and that's not the only throwback to film history in the film. Um, you have cutaways to classic films in there. Uh, yeah, so I've uh, there's some Nosferatu. Yep. There's some classic Disney, uh, okay. like Steamboat Willie. 
uh, that's in there. Um, it was mostly stuff I had, I was identifying because I wanted to do some stuff like that. I love mixed media, and it was another reason. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll get into this in a second. But so yeah, anything that's like mixed mixed media style. So I I had found I went to like you know the National Archives and was just looking for stuff that was fully in the public domain that I can use because I knew they they weren't going to pay for anything uh, additional. They were already you know, and so. And so I just found a bunch of stuff that I really felt like worked. And there were some some things that, you know, were very questionable if it was in the public domain. And, mm-hmm. and you know, there was like Woody Woodpecker. And they're like, well, that's not in the public domain. I'm like, ask your lawyer. I'm like, it is. And it's just this one particular episode had lapsed and no one had like resubmitted the copyright, copyright paper for extension. It was like these odd, these really odd circumstances on how something like became public domain when it felt like it wasn't. So it does give it the film that I'm, it does give it the idea that I'm not just kind of like using stuff that people have seen because it's public domain so many times I'd really done some like really hard research um, and worked it out with the clearance attorney to make sure that like there was some stuff that were definitely some great gems but uh, on the mixed media thing um, I mean there was points in the edit where I had a lot more of that stuff in there mm-hmm. and it just started to feel like forced and I'm just kind of like you know I'd, so I, I kind of dialed it back a little bit mm-hmm. but then with mixed media another this was extremely laborious this took me again another month so all of the all of the TVs in the elf's office, all that material I wanted to have like real VHS. And we had shot some stuff, like some of the stuff in the workshop and and these things on like on like a little mini DV camera in order for these things to go on the screen. But I needed like I had eight TVs in his office, so I needed a lot of material. Yeah. And I and I wanted more TVs. We're just couldn't get forward to get more TVs. But I'm telling you right now, thank God we didn't get more TVs because it this took me forever. And to match the aesthetic of the mini DV camera that we did, I wanted to make sure that everything that was on those screens was had that same look to it. Mm-hmm. And so I had gotten um, some like home videos from when I was a kid. So you can see me on those screens a lot, me and my sister and my parents. So I had taken these old home movies of me at like Christmas when I was like six Mm -hmm. and then taken these things. So there's like me on the screen opening up presents and there's like all this stuff like me skiing, me swimming with my dad. And it was supposed to be just looking like he is, of course, looking for like naughty children around the world was like the idea. But then even with this, I'm like and I couldn't keep on reusing, you know, so much of this material. So I still needed more stuff. Mm-hmm. And and there was some stuff that I really did want, but it wasn't shot on traditional VHS. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, but how do I get the look? So what I did was instead of doing a filter, and I and I had a friend who did this for a movie, and it worked. I thought it it was fantastic. So I had taken some of this material, and even with some of those transitions, I did the same exact thing with this when we're transitioning from like Santa's television into like the real shot. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I, I recorded all this like 4K high great movie camera footage. I recorded it back to VHS mm-hmm. and then re and then redigitized the VHS recording of this stuff back into the computer. So it's actually coming from VHS at that point. That's right. So therefore, and now the look is exactly it looks like it was shot on VHS because I did the record back. Yeah, yeah. And then the and then the redigitized. So I did this for a, a lot of shots. Wow. So I had set up, you know, this like eight monitor, like eight different unique assets. Pretty much all of them, the majority of them had to get recorded back um, to VHS and then brought back in again. Uh, so I had done this like and lined things up to to make it all kind of match. 
Um, so this took, you know, this was a, a, a huge, huge process. And then the then the, the other problem with this is that, you know, VHS is a reversal style like capturing process. Mm -hmm. And so when we're shooting digital cinema these days, it's really a negative process. Mm -hmm. And so we could not for coloring purposes uh, I did not we didn't bake in the the visual effects of the TV screens into the original clip. And so this way they could be managed uh, the color management could be separate. What do you mean that you put them in in post? Well, yeah, so yeah, so they were blue screens. Oh, okay. On on the TVs and then so I did this process afterwards. So this way also two things in the workshop could line up like there's like the things blowing up and like the everyone everything's going on fire. So those are all on the screens too. So on the set, yeah, all those screens are blue screens. Okay, okay, got it. And so the everything was put in afterwards. And so, and because of VHS being a reversal capturing kind of process, and and we shot the movie in a negative process, I we kept them both separate. And of mm -hmm. course, like you know, a colorist is just kind of like, man, there's all these visual effects layers in here. Can't you just bake the stuff in? It's just like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't because you know it's like. Or I mean, the other thing would be to try and to bring down the reversal to like, uh, you know, bring down the contrast and the color so it would look like log. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it can have a more negative look to it, so it can be colored. But then also too, it's like. It would, that stuff was in black and white. So then I would have had to have done, I would have had to have done a massive like pre like color, you know, two log almost treatment to everything, then add the black and white, then bake it in and then have the guy, you know, do a look overall. Um, and maybe it's, maybe it's just me being a control freak uh, about all the little details, but it was just like, so it was important to just keep the stuff separate. And, but the TVs, I mean, the TVs took, a tremendous, tremendous amount of time uh, to get all that material together and have it all lined up properly. And when I saw that scene, I didn't even notice the TVs or I didn't notice um, the aesthetic on the TVs being weird or anything. So in that way, I think the thing that goes unnoticed usually is the proof of a good job, you know? Totally. Totally. Um, you kind of touched on this before, but we were talking about this film. It has like a very PG rating. Does it actually have a PG rating? It does have a PG rating, and I was and I act, okay. I honestly was like I really thought it was going to get a PG thirteen rating, um, yeah. and only because of. But I mean, I you know, there's a lot of like great classic PG movies that have a lot of like nuanced adult jokes in them that yeah, yeah. you know I guess it flies right over the kids' heads, and that's that's what I was expecting to happen. But yeah. you know, there's the moment when. Uh, the woman, the boss is like, you know, all the girls are hitting on him on the clone. So that moment right there was just kind of like, some people were like, I think, I think you took it too far here. You know, <laughs> She's like, and I was just like, nah, I think it's going to be fine. And, uh, and, it, and it turned out to be fine because I mean, they wanted a PG rating and, and they were able to get one. So some of your other work is a lot harsher um, and definitely created for a more mature audi audience. Um, do you enjoy working on a film like this in comparison, a PG film like this? Uh, you know what? It's honestly, I think if you asked me this question, like, uh, like five, even five years ago, I, I would probably had a very different answer, but I mean, it's like, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, yeah. at the end of the day for me, it's just kind of like, you know, I'm here to entertain people and I just want to tell 
fun, exciting stories, and mm. and in new ways, and like push boundaries of storytelling if possible, when possible, and and I think that this is a great example of like pushing the boundaries. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways, and and calling back to, it's not like I feel like I I re you know invented the wheel here, uh, in any type of ways, but I definitely incorporated a lot of things together that I don't think have ever gone together before this. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's so in that regards it's like super fun and also too it's just like you know you I feel like you're that you I, I think that that one might feel like the stakes are lower so you're you're kind of more open to experiment in like a mm-hmm. in a big way and so you're yeah you're less fearful about about it going forward so it's just so you end up having a lot more fun than you yeah. think about I mean there's just yeah I mean there's just a ton of fun fun it's just I mean the movie's just fun that's like that's really it at the end of the day. And I think like filmmaking is filmmaking also. It's fun to be in that director's chair, unless the project is something you really hate or you're uh, you know morally against or something. It's still a chance to exercise that your craft, and um, it's a lot of fun to be in that position. Totally, and I think no matter what the story is um, in anything, that you, you always, as a director, you need to find your way into something, and there has to be something there that kind of like attracts you to it, and there has to be some type of thematic to it. You know, it's like you look at like Spielberg, and it's like you've seen him from from kid stuff to very adult stuff. But I think that no matter what it is, there's very similar thematics that attract him to those particular projects, and that's why he did them in the first place. And so I think that's what it is. It's just about finding your in, and that can be challenging. And sometimes it's like you know, I've read stuff where I'm like. I don't really, I don't, I'm not really feeling this, but there's, there's a couple details about it that I'm like, oh, you know, like, okay, I see, I can see it through this lens and this is, this is interesting. And, and if I can like, you know, focus on this part of it or bring this more out, um, and then I could, I could really see myself enjoying doing this project. And, and even for this project, you know, it was more like, you know, the original ending for this project was that, uh, he, after the arena scene, he'd like, they'd got him all like packed up. He like flew around the world and was like the best Santa ever and like delivered a bunch of presents and like he was great. Then he got back to the North Pole, met his father, and then his like family was there waiting for him and stuff. So I was just like, and my thing was just like, listen, it, this isn't about, this movie isn't about him being a good Santa like at all. And like, and I wanted to make sure that he wasn't. And this is why, like, I had him fall off the roof at the end and the stuff. And it's like, <laughs> I'm like, no, he's supposed to like, he's not there yet. But the, you need to have the promise that he will be, you know, right, that he's right. gonna give it his all. And it's not, it's not about him being a good Santa, becoming a good Santa. The movie is about him being a good father. Absolutely, and and that's something yeah. that I didn't feel like was like, I almost feel like the original writer, like, subconsciously wrote in these details, but didn't didn't see it through fully and so i i saw something that i feel like that they didn't and so i brought these things to life more and i wanted to make sure that the daughter was like not just a not just a texture to it but like it was the the motivation for everything was because of her and including that all the way to the end definitely yeah 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 and like you said you know despite the the genre or or the the type of film you're making or something you see your stamp on your work you know whether it's in Danny Boy or this film, um, you know, the, the interest in, in family and even in, in the visuals, uh, like you were saying on the TVs, it's your own home movies in the background. Right. I mean, it is like at the end of the day, you're right. Every single thing that I've ever made is about like, you know, minus like 
I Love New York doesn't have that either. But maybe that does have some like kind of family to it too. It is about like that relationship between, you know, these two people. Anyway, but yeah, but most most of the time it is always kind of family. Um, it is kind of like very father and son oriented. You know, it is yep. about mm-hmm. these people getting together. I mean, one of my favorite filmmakers, which I had the pleasure of, of working with uh, on a few films, was like David O. Russell, and mm-hmm. and and he wasn't originally like one of my favorite filmmakers. But, you know, when, once I started to realize about the complexity of his work with his dysfunctional family dynamics, you know, I found that to be, like, in, incredibly powerful and extremely hard to do. And, like, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's what really started to attract me more and more and more to that. What, what film of, of O. Russell's are you thinking of in particular? Uh, well, I mean, the, the the film that I love the most is The Fighter, like big fan. And and I, I mean, I like his other work, too, but that one just kind of like stands out to me um, in a big way. And and I mean, all of his work, I love like, you know, flirting with disaster, or even Three Kings, uh, which is very different than a lot of things, other things he's done. Yeah. But most of his stuff is about family. And an interesting thing that David said to me once was, and this was talking, we were having a conversation about finding one's voice. Mm-hmm. And and he was just like, he was like, you know, I just feel like for the first time in my life that I discovered the, the kind of filmmaker that I am. He's like, it almost makes me feel like everything before the fighter, some like alien had abducted my body and, and made those films. And I don't even know, I don't even know that person anymore that made those films. Like, oh, wow. And, and I mean, that's always an interesting thing. And it just proves that like, you know, someone is, it grows and tastes change and like people and storytellers evolve. Like, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't be, if I had like the tools and the means to be doing this, say 15 years ago, I would be making very, very different movies. And it's not like I gave into something else. I just like allowed myself to be okay with the, the growth of the person that I became and, and what I decided to do with that. Definitely. Circumstances change. And, you know, if you're honest with yourself and everything, that voice kind of continues to grow and change. Absolutely. Um, you touched on this earlier with uh, Swen Studios. Uh, I know they're distributing this film. Uh, but where do you see this film going? What's the, the distribution path like for this movie? Um, well, I mean, right now it's just a lot of international uh, stuff and 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 then now it's like they they are going after uh, some stronger domestic uh, distribution. Um, so will it, will it be screening mostly, or will I mean streaming, or will will there be actual screenings of it as well? I would imagine that it would probably be streaming. It definitely seems okay. more like a streaming movie, um, but we'll see. I'm hoping that you know I tell them like I'm like get that Netflix deal. I'm like you know get it out there i mean only because of the the major reason is just of course as a filmmaker one of the the biggest helpful things is that uh is that you have the biggest audience possible right, or, right. or that it just reaches a good audience and i know that's a platform that's in order to do that and when i got into this project i did a lot of research on on christmas films what was out there what was the kind of things that people were doing you know what was the quality of those things and there was like you know six Netflix Christmas films uh, that they that they just put out you know for that year and mm-hmm. and and most of, and they were like you know their stamp brand was on it and I had done some research and they had like these were like most of these these were all like Hallmark produced films that Netflix had purchased and then put their name on it and I didn't think they were that great and, and I mean and it's like some of them were definitely better than others but some of them were just like a couple of these were like I mean it was rough like it was rough rough to watch it was really hard and I mean, I mean it was just like the acting was incredibly poor uh, they were not entertaining it was confusing there was even one that was like 
I, I mean, you could, even technically was like kind of like choppy and, and pretty messed up. And, and I couldn't believe I'm like, and this one that, I mean, the worst one that I saw, I had found out that it was made for like half a million dollars and Netflix had, you know, purchased the probably about probably three year right or something for it for like 2 million. And it's just kind of like, wow, if, if, you know, if this, if these guys can get this on here, I was just like, I could definitely do something that could get, you know, get it on here. People love Christmas movies and they're, and they want like people, and people will watch anything when it comes to it being Christmas and they might not like it, but they're just constantly looking for new Christmas content. And yeah, they might mm-hmm. watch some garbage Christmas movie and then they'll have to like cleanse their palate by going back to like Christmas story. And, <laughs> and then they're like moving forward, but they want, they want something new. And so, and, and I think that like, you just need to be a bit more daring about it. And they all seem to be kind of the same. And the thing that makes the like movies like trading places and Christmas story unique is that they, they're, different and so and then why is like why are all these people trying to make the same exact Christmas movie it's the same exact story they're all the same exact thing most of them are all like they're also like romantic you know romantic uh, comedy kind of Christmas movies is like what seem to be the the number one go to for all this and they all just seem like I watched like six of the same movie Uh, but just but just some better than others I I think it's a risk though right I mean it's like uh, Christmas story is so unique it's more of a risk to do that type of movie rather than just repeating, um, regurgitating the same Christmas movie, you know, a year later. Of course. I mean, I get it. I get it. I mean, because like they, they definitely, their numbers tell them that like, we can guarantee that we're going to make X amount of dollars by regurgitating this. Yes. If we take the risk, we could possibly make a fucking shitload of money, uh, by doing it the other way. However, we could also lose a lot of money too. So we'd rather like, and I get it. That's a, it it is a business. And that's one thing I do recognize. And I am like, I'm not going to sit here and like, like trash talk, you know, how, why people make these type of decisions in Hollywood. It is a business and like, and it's a smart business decision. Like it is what it is. Um, but there are some people who like in any business are going, are more susceptible to taking risks, risks in business, knowing that they're like, you know, big risk is going to be a big reward. And there are people that operate like that. And, but you know, there's not a, there's not a ton of them, especially when you're looking at how much money it costs in this type of risk It's an expensive risk. Yeah, exactly. It's a big gamble. <laughs> it's a big gamble. And so, and also too, if you're someone who's like, you know, kind of stepping outside the box, uh, making stuff and the way that you make things and, and seeing things in a different vernacular that, you know, like, are, are you proven in this? It's like, I could pitch, if I pitch this, this concept and the way I wanted to do this to like, say, you know, like universal and they wanted to make like a $20 million Christmas movie and they wanted something new and different. And I pitched them this and my, my pitch deck, they would have just, they would never have hired me. No way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely Mm -hmm. not. And even if like, they didn't quite get it, but they hired me and then I started making this, they would have, they would have fired me. And I, and I, and I had thought about that when I was doing the Simon creation, the black and white sequence, the, yep. the dream I'm just kind of like when we were shooting that I looked at my DP and I'm just kind of like I'm like if if this movie had like if there was actual like good a decent budget behind this movie uh, with investors and producers that were like trying to look after it like responsibly I'd be fired right now like mm-hmm. like 100% so I, one of the things about it was just like I was very 
uh, happy about the experience because I knew I was going to be able to get away with a lot. When I didn't have a lot of stuff like this in my repertoire that to prove that like, hey, you know, like this is going to work and you saw right. my last thing and you should have faith. That's why you brought me here because my last thing worked. It was super successful and I did all these crazy kind of things and and that's that's you liked me. That's why I'm here. And so I, I don't I didn't have that, but now I do. And like so now I could definitely go forward and, and I think, you know, a pitch to somebody, you know, that that's a little outside the box. They might be able to go, hey, well, you definitely were able to make something pretty great. That's outside the box that that everybody seems to enjoy. And it's not just like, you know, it's not too like art house of a Christmas movie for a general audience to get in get into. Yeah, yeah. If anything, it's been a calling card for, you know, future opportunities where you have even more room to, to move around. Absolutely. Uh, what other Christmas films, uh, what other classic Christmas films did you watch uh, in preparation for this movie? Um, I didn't watch a lot. I only did the research of kind of like what was out there currently on the market okay. about like what the current mm-hmm. market was like. Um, but it wasn't for like, a, you know, aesthetic or influence or anything. I find that if I'm going to like if I was going to make a Western, I wouldn't go and watch Westerns. Like, I'm mm-hmm. that type of person. I would, like, want to get to the heart of the story and then, like, watch films that have similar story threads yeah, and lines sense. regardless of genre. And I think that's, like, what anyone should be looking at. Like, if I'm here mm-hmm. to make, if I'm going into making this father-daughter story, like, what are some other projects that have, like, a very similar kind of, like, idea from this? And maybe I'm going to watch, like, Kramer vs. Kramer. And like, yeah, that was the first thing that came to mind. Yep. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm going to watch when I, when I'm like going out to make this movie, not other Christmas movies. Right, right. Um, I have one other question about uh, Santa and Terrain. It's kind of a specific question. Um, the length of the film, did you... Did, are you the editor on this film? I did end up editing it, yeah. Okay, did you edit this to be a particular length? Because I think it's exactly like 130, right around there. Uh, yeah, it's like 135 with the end credits and everything. Okay, I was just wondering, um, in terms of distribution, did you were you forced to edit it exactly that length, or was is that how the movie came out naturally? No, it's how it came came out naturally. I mean, like okay. I had at one point. Uh, sometimes when I'm cutting things, and you know you're with it for a long time, um, there there tends to and and I learned this from like a good editor that that I like working with. You know, it was just kind of at one point going in and doing an extremely aggressive cut. And just really tightening the hell out of everything. And I did that at one point, And I was like, my goal for this aggressive cut was to get it to like 125. Mm-hmm. And and I couldn't quite get there. I was like, and I thought I wasn't being aggressive enough. But I realized there, there was definitely some things that it improved some, some sp- certain spots. Uh, some other things were just I needed to bring some things back. Um, so I tried to make it as tight as possible. And again, because, you know, it's like I directed as well. Maybe I'm not as objective as um, as I should have been uh, for things. But I think I got it as tight as I possibly could make it. Um, mm mm-hmm. Yeah, I just always find that length interesting, an hour and a half. I mean, I also have had projects that are around that time, um, but like maybe fell short by 10 minutes, something like that. And then it's kind of this question of, well, you know, do I try to make it longer and maybe put in some more fluff or something to make it a little more sellable or something like that um, versus what I think the film actually should be. And I was just wondering if the distribution um, played a, a role in that. Yeah, so one of the things about length is that I know that if, if it has to be pretty much to get any real distribution, you're looking at, you know, at least 85 minutes. Right, right. Um, so if something falls short, and I did see a project um, 
that I was slightly involved in like two years ago that fell short of that and it was like there was this massive concern of like how and they had also brought back like every single scene the thing is like they couldn't sell the project because it was so bad they hired a, an editor to come in uh who was you know gonna like do a, a polish he brought back every single scene that was cut out which was a lot and and he was able to cut off like 30 minutes of the movie and that's with bringing back uh, every single scene so he didn't end up cutting anything out and it still was like short and so uh they literally kind of like made the credits a little did like a little thing at the end of the credits and like did some stuff just to kind of like help fluff it out i mean and it just squeaked over you know just squeaked over so that can be tough but yeah so i wasn't worried i mean after the initial first cut you know i think that like the first assembly was somewhere around like you know 145 uh, 150. So I felt confident, you know, it's like even with that and, and it was a pretty and it was like wasn't like a messy assembly of like everything was there. It was across the board. I'm like, I don't think that 20 minutes are going to more than 20 minutes. And this was without any credits. So I'm just like, okay. so I don't think that like, you know, when it comes to the credit time, you know, you got to think it was probably three or four minutes for that that there was going to be more than 25 minutes of, of movie getting cut out of this. I didn't think, I didn't see it possible at all. No, I, I mean, the film to me feels tight right now. Um, all right. Well, I want to move from, uh, Santa and training, um, change topics a little bit. Um, can we get into your life a little bit? Sure. What do you want to know? You were, you're born in tuxedo park. That's right. Tuxedo park, New York. Okay. Um, tell me a little bit about growing up in tuxedo park. Uh, were you always interested in the arts as a kid? Uh, yeah, always. Um, I mean, my parents always brought um, me and my sister to like museums on the weekends. Um, I was always involved in like school plays. I did like community theater uh, when I was like really young. Um, always was in the musicals and plays, uh, and, and by my own will, um, wanting mm-hmm. to do that all the way through elementary school, um, up through high school, and I always wanted to get into film. Uh, I didn't know anyone with a video camera. My parents couldn't afford a video camera. Uh, so for sometimes with class projects, I would like try to, um, you know, team with somebody who's like owned a video camera to try to make gotcha. somebody. Um, my father worked in the AV department at the Marriott in Midtown for a few years. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And so he would sometimes be able to bring home a video camera. And so that was like my first time, like really kind of ever doing anything with the video cameras. With that was because of that. And he'd also bring home uh, like a projector and like a big screen. So he'd set it up in the living room and we'd watch like movies on Saturday night. And like that felt like we were at the movie theater. That's awesome. So your parents are pretty supportive of the arts and of you following uh, some kind of artistic uh, interest and everything. Hundred percent. Oh yeah. Ever since day one. Yeah, day one. They've always been very supportive of it. Very cool. And then um, you went to SUNY Purchase for film studies, film history? Uh, film studies, yeah. Film studies, okay. Uh, what was uh, SUNY Purchase like for film studies? Because I know that they have a reputation for their film program. Um, I think I'm thinking more of their production program. Um, but how was it in terms of film studies? Uh, it was great. I mean, like, so I I originally started, I did like a semester at community college. I was, uh, I was working as a chef at the Tuxedo Park Country Club and I was kind of like unsure of what to do or how to go forward. So I was doing some television production at the community college. Um, and then I transferred to, uh, to SUNY Purchase and started doing that. And when I was there for after like a year, I'd asked, uh, I'd met with the, the head of the film conservatory there and was talking to her about transferring uh, into the production program, and 
and she and she talked me out of it actually uh Mm -hmm. which was funny because she was like listen uh she's like it's a conservatory so there's no like general ed like none of this stuff is going to count you're going to have to start from day one because it's a conservatory Mm -hmm. so it's not like you like pick up and there you are you're starting school all over again um and i was just like and she's like and also she's like listen she's like i love my film students she's like but the thing is a problem that i constantly have is they know how to make a movie but they don't know what to make a movie about they have like she's like in your program she's like you have to do humanities and like you know lots of different subjects um and have more of a general education she's like it this conservatory uh we you don't do that at all and, she's and I think like, unless you want to, unless you want to be just a technician, that's such an important part of, of education. Absolutely, hundred percent. It's super important. And so she was like, you know, she's like, you know, get it. She's like, do that. It's going to be, it's super helpful. She's like, listen, you you study theory, and all these things, and they're 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 far more important. The technical aspects of filmmaking. She's like, you can you can get out there in the world, and you can you can learn a lot about it and you can figure it out out there. And she's like, and if you still feel like you need some film school, she's like, go to, go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And, and so I kind of, I took that advice and uh, I got out of there and, and got a job working in film. Um, and I did that for a few years and then I went back to school and I went to graduate school. What was your job out of college? Um, so I originally worked at LMC TV uh, where we both met. Um, yep. So I worked there for about a year after school um, a big a big reason too where I had to work there was because I had gotten into a uh, awful car accident my senior year, mm-hmm. and so my I was going to weekend jail, and I had a probation officer and going to outpatient rehab. So the only job wow. I could really hold down because of this like DWI car accident was LMC TV. So the guy who ran the station was just kind of like, yeah, I told him about the situation and he said he would work the schedule around it. And, and I had known him for a while. So he was really nice in order to do that. Uh, a regular place definitely wouldn't do that. So I stayed there until I kind of was a little bit more free from the man uh, mm-hmm. So to say, so and then after that, I had gotten a job um, as a PA on a movie, and I'd met some great assistant directors who, and then brought me along and made me their kind of a their key PA, their assistants, like a fourth AD, and I'd went and done some like really big, big Hollywood movies, and I and I ended up doing a, a ton of movies with that AD team. I ended up working with other people. I got into the DGA as an assistant director. Um, and I kept working and that's also, that's where I met, you know, David O. Russell. I worked with him, David Fincher, Martin Scorsese, uh, the Coen brothers, uh, Paul Greengrass, uh, Darren Aronofsky, um, and the list, yeah, Rob Reiner. I I worked with a lot of really great filmmakers and got to know them. And, And one thing that I learned, you know, about, about being next to these guys all day long, uh, for the, for the whole shoot was that you know my job was there to execute things and and so i was like you know i I, that's what that's what the asds do it's like set management there's a lot of things you might know how to execute better it's like you know if the director's like i want this or or that or i want the shot to do this than that the dp and the ad are going to figure out how to actually make that that vision that idea happen so Mm -hmm. so there's certain things i'm sure that i might know better about filmmaking as a practical stance than some of these famous directors, possibly. Um, but the one thing I realized, I'm just like, I'm here executing decisions because 
uh, they they had made the choices and I just have like and I'm sure a lot of these things listen they can they can always figure out how to do it on their own but like a DP and the AD are going to figure out the most efficient way to do it because they just do it more often like a, a director is right. on set every like two or three years and so mm-hmm. the DP and the AD are working all the time so they're figuring out efficient and great ways to to tackle these problems on a day-to-day basis so they can do it faster and better um they just they just need the director to tell them exactly what they want and that's it but these these directors had made their choices long before i got there and and that's one thing i knew that was sure that i was sure of when i worked with them mm-hmm. i was just like why why this one instead of that there's a million and one choices you can make so why is this shot like you know why this shot instead of a different shot mm-hmm. and and so I always felt like they were something they didn't know, and especially when, and and I talk about David or Russell a lot because you know he's such a great influence to me because the guy doesn't really have a lot of inner monologue, so a lot of his things he actually speaks out loud, and and I think working with him was the first time that I really, really hearing someone speak out loud, figuring out things within the process, you know about mm-hmm. like you know about the motivation of what this character is doing, and then how all the other elements kind of play into that, and. And I and it was amazing to listen to. So I I knew this, and when I so I decided I'm like, and I r- always wanted to to go to grad school anyway. I think that I just kind of got wrapped up in the career for a little bit, and so I decided I was going to look into grad school. Now the only program that seemed to be fitting because it was a conservatory program, and they have a program just for directing, and they do require industry experience before you get there. And it wasn't like most other graduate programs at NYU or USC. They are generalized. And I'm like, I know a lot about film. I don't want to go and like have to take a class on on editing um, or something. I don't want that. And you know, and they are for like beginners. They you know they. And so this program was not, uh, for, it was not for beginners at all. And so I decided to only apply there. I'm like, listen, if I don't get in there, then I'm again, I'm not, I don't want to waste my time in other places that I don't feel like are going to serve me best. So everyone had to have some type of professional experience. And I didn't mean it was just like in film, uh, but there was things that they felt like were important and related to such. So yep. it's like one of the directors in my class was, um, you know, an actor in the Royal Shakespeare Company. So there was a, there was like two actors, two I mean, very professional actors other in my class, and they definitely helped because they would help discussion in class about acting, about working with actors. Um, so it was helpful. There was another guy who worked in an agency. I was an assistant director. Um, someone had worked at a TV station as a as like a segment producer. Uh, so there was lots of different you know different things, and we so we were able to help each other out and. And we also didn't share the same voice creatively. We they definitely didn't want. Uh, you know, two horror directors in the class. Uh, they they wanted people that were all doing very different things, so we weren't competing with each other, and we were just gonna be able there to support each other. Um, and and with our unique backgrounds and our different our different tastes, didn't get in the way. You know, and and but regardless, I still think that you know the directors, so they're all still pretty competitive, regardless. Uh, mm-hmm. But this definitely helped to minimize that in a huge way. Yeah, and I'm sure that adds such a quality to the work, uh, just being able to draw on all those different resources and backgrounds. Absolutely. Before we go in with AFI, actually, I want to back up for one second. You were talking about uh, a lot of big productions you had worked on uh, before AFI and a lot of major directors you had worked with. Are there any other anecdotes from that time um, that you could talk about? Or are there any sets in particular that stood out to you? Well, I mean, when it comes to like... 
Well, I mean, uh, again, I, I don't go back to David or Russell. I mean, like that, yep. that super influential, uh, especially when it comes to working with actors. Because one thing about David and, and something I tried to do, even though I feel like there's, you know, and people will say that my work is like very uh, visually specific, um, mm-hmm. what I have going on. I mean, but it could be more. And But one thing that David did was he w- he was just, his biggest goal was always to eliminate the, the technical as much as possible. And just really treat it like it was like some black box theater. And so he had the ability to kind of play and kind of like try different things and, and work things out, you know, there in the moment and, and build uh, the scene with the actors and like take it to different new heightened levels as much as possible. So he was super big on taking taking it all out. And mm-hmm. and I always wanted to like and but the thing is the the reason the 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 moment I decided I wanted to become a filmmaker was when I saw Pi, Aronofsky's first film. Yep. And I had watched a lot of movies, uh, especially with my father growing up, and he had introduced me to some really interesting things as well. But still, the majority of the stuff that we were watching was very like big Hollywood cinema, and. And so it was all kind of like, you know, similar in a way. And when I saw that, it, it wasn't like I wanted to make movies like Pi. It's just that that Pi made me realize that the possibilities of cinema were like were endless yeah. of, of what you could do and how far you could stretch your imagination um, and bring them to life. And that's when I realized the power of the medium. And, and that's that's what made me want to do it so i was fortunate enough to also work with darren aronofsky and so as like you know someone who this was your inspirational force from the beginning even though and originally too because originally i was doing stuff that i felt like was that was almost darren aronofsky-esque you know kind of work and and that's because, and I think a lot. I think most people do this. It's just like you're going to kind of like mimic the things that influenced you and chase in. You've yet to like find your own voice right, and right. things. And and so, and I, I quickly, and actually not so quickly, realized that it's like that wasn't quite what I wanted to do. I just thought it's what I wanted to do, or I just didn't know what, what exactly what I wanted to do in this. So that just seemed to be what I was doing. Um, yeah. And so. And at this point, when I had met Darren, I don't think I, – I, I mean, I honestly don't think I really started to really kind of come into my own um, until AFI or and maybe not even at AFI afterwards. But it definitely helped push me in the direction of, of finding my own voice, just the way that the school worked. Mm-hmm. And and so, but at the as this like fanboy, it was like it was fun to meet him and work with him and talk with him. I mean, and he was a great guy. He wrote me a letter of recommendation to AFI. Um, wow. He had gone to AFI himself. Uh, he didn't he didn't complete the program because the, you have to reapply for the second year. Uh, so he didn't get accepted into the second year. Um, he's doing just fine. Uh, <laughs> so, and but it's funny when I asked him about it you know he almost tried to talk me out of it and he was just kind of like he's like what do you need to what do you need to go there for he's like you're working on i was working on noah with him and noah was definitely as like a as like a you know theatrical mechanical kind of like you know idea it was definitely yeah. the most extravagant thing i had ever done um in my career i mean it was it was pretty mind-blowing i there was guys that been like they've been working in the business for 30 40 years and they were like i've never seen anything like this this is and because we didn't want to do green screen it was, he wanted things to be practical so we built the arc like the thing was this massive set piece it was just it was insane yeah it's amazing 
and and so he tried to do as much in camera as possible and his voice you know his visuals are extremely specific and i think a lot of other people that'd be shooting something like that some of these battle sequences they would have gotten five cameras and he was still shooting single camera with like mm-hmm. you know a thousand extras and we would do this battle sequence like we would do like maybe three shots a night for like for six weeks straight um every night so it's just like i don't think most people can afford the ability to do something like that but again he'd proven his his methods uh you know and was successful in them so he was able to kind of like lobby for what he wanted and or how he wanted to work so i um so i did all the the, the work for all the extras with noah um so all those refugees that you see running across um this kind of field to the ark to try to get on before the flood takes them away that was all my handiwork uh, there. And what were you, what did you do specifically? Were you directing them? Uh, no. So I, my job was to, I directed some of them, but the directing of them was, is also other people's, uh, job. But my primary function, uh, first and foremost was getting all of the extras through hair, makeup, wardrobe, uh, getting them fed, getting them out there from the city. So I would had, I had like 10 different people working for me and mm-hmm. they would be on, I'd be out. We shot out in Long Island. So I'd have some of my guys on a bus in the city, like checking in people on these short line buses and busing them out from New York uh, out to Long Island. And then we'd land them, feed them, get them dressed, hair, makeup, wardrobe, and then get them ready to shoot and then get them out of there and then have to do all their paperwork and all that. So that was like the primary function. And I'd have, you know, I'd have to do this for, you know, depending on the day, but between 200 to 500 people a day. So it was a really tough thing. Um, uh, tough process, uh, but and then so and then once everyone was ready, I'd bring them to set. I would direct them um, as well. But when there's that many people, it's broken up into a lot of different assistant directors who are all helping to get this to to speak to this amount of people. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. But I would prep them myself before bringing them to set because I was the, so I'd be there with a bullhorn talking to 500 people about this is the scene, this is what we're going to need you to do, and like here we go. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's so cool that you actually got to spend time uh, with the director on that and talk to Aronofsky and everything. Yeah. So, I mean, like we would talk, I mean, most of the time on set because like, you know, the my position, I would be getting direction from the first assistant director and he would be just mm-hmm. talking to the first assistant director. And that's usually the kind of the way things would work um, in a situation like that. But there was lots of lots of great moments Um that we spoke directly or we just got to know each other, um, you know, at lunch and other times. Very cool. Um, and then any other stories from this time? I know you also worked on Boardwalk Empire, um, and a bunch of other big productions. Yeah. I mean, it was just great to, one thing about working in that department just really helped, uh, demystify the process. And and I think before Mm -hmm. I got a job on a big set, I thought that everyone was some like film Einstein, uh, that was Mm -hmm. working on stuff of the scale. And I quickly debunked that theory, um, and just gave me a lot more confidence that, you know, I could do this as well and learning a lot more about the process. Um, you know, as a, just kind of like, uh, on a management, uh, picture because that's what I was involved in um, yeah. was great and again like you know for a, most of my career uh, was a key PA or second second AD and so those positions I was always directly involved uh, with the director uh, f- uh, first and foremost and so it's like so it usually it'd be like me and the first AD uh, working with the director on the set uh, in the moment to bring these moments to life and then, and then, and then, coordinating out other responsibilities uh, to other people that worked with us uh, in order to get us the things we needed to make these things happen. 
but I mean, it was great. Uh, I mean, a lot of great. Oh, also too, uh, you know, another person that I actually really, um, uh, enjoyed, especially because he's a big thing right now. Was like Noah Baumbach. I did a, a HBO pilot with him that never never went anywhere. But he also had a very kind of diff- a very different, interesting way of working with actors um, that was always able to soak in as much as possible along the way. But again, it's like I realized that there was a point that I was either going to make this my career, which would have been a fantastic career, or I was going to take what I learned and because the learning curve had kind of ended at some point and there was definitely more to learn in that career path but it, in that type of career path on big things like that it was going to take me you know 20 years to get to the top of the rung there you know right, and right, right. Maybe it's just part of my impatience uh where i didn't want to do that and that was also not the career um that i wanted so i wasn't going to wait that long to continue to learn more and i knew i was going to be pretty much in my position for quite a while um so i wanted to continue to grow and that was a big another big part of making the decision to go to afi which which was a tough thing because a lot of people you know all the below the line people on on the sets are like what are you doing what are you crazy like what are you stupid like you're you know you've got a great job you you know you're uh you know you're good at what you do uh, you're working with a lot of great people you know how to make a movie why do you have to go to film school um but the above the line people when i would tell them like what what i wanted to do in my plan they thought they're like oh such a smart move you just you learned a lot about like the mechanics uh from in your job here and now you're gonna like take it a step further and like really smart move super smart move and it was just always funny how i heard those differences and how they were so distinctly different um and and you could totally see the type of people that you know, had the differences in this opinion from being above the line and below the line. At AFI, Danny Boy was your thesis, right? It was, yes. Uh, can you give some background on Danny Boy for anybody listening who hasn't seen the film? Yeah, so Danny Boy is about a um, a kid on nine eleven who's about to go and get um, uh, his he's he's waiting for a sentencing trial to happen and the courthouse gets shut down due to 9-11 but he doesn't know what's going on and he's an incredibly selfish character and he just like kind of wants the badger's lawyer about trying to like one last stand to get him out of this and there's one last thing that he could do um so he doesn't have to go to jail and so he spends he spends a good amount of the time just kind of like you know following and and the lawyer and trying to get him to do something for him um and then he realizes what's going on around him and so he's been so focused on himself he can't see the world um at all so and then he begins to change because of the day i you know i started i created this idea because 9-11 is something that's always interested me in a huge way and one thing about all 9-11 movies that they're always based on like you know the the fireman or the mta officer and i and i understand why but i also feel that you know it is a very universal story and, and anyone you speak to remembers the moment they saw the tv and it's and it's had a profound impact on so many people's lives that that weren't there and I and I've always wanted that ability to tell that story of like what about the people that weren't there and how did it impact them and, and I think mm-hmm. there's a really interesting angle there, um, which I'm not sure I I totally that I nailed at all uh, with Danny Boy. I think it's difficult in the short form for such a massive subject like that. Um, but I think like 9/11 is the backdrop of that film. Like you said, you know how incredibly selfish the character is. I mean the the contrast between what he wants out of his lawyer and and the backdrop being 9-11 is just like incredible it really you know shows directly who this character is right and then again i think this film it is like some of your other movies and everything is uh at its core a family story it's a, a father and son story in a way even though 
the 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 Danny's father isn't there, and he kind of turns to this lawyer as a, a father figure in the end. Totally. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how did you come up with this film? Uh, the idea behind it, the kind of the premise on how the how the the plot would operate, came from on nine eleven. I was in court myself, and and they had shut down the courthouse. Um, I did actually make it into court, unlike the character there. Um, okay. We had kind of like, you know, we'd had it shut down before he got into the courthouse itself. Um, originally in the script, he did go in the courthouse, but again, trying to contain it um, into a short form, you know, had to make, you know, had to cut that out and, and figure mm-hmm. other creative ways around it. Um, so it was kind of based a little bit off my own um experience from from that but that was about it and then everything else was you know completely fabricated so the whole core concept came from a personal experience um everything else was made up um the way that the the afi uh does the thesis film process so at the end of the first year anybody in any discipline can write a thesis script and have it greenlit and they greenlit 30 scripts and so you had to, as a director in the program, you had to choose from one of the greenlit scripts. And and so if yours didn't get greenlit, then you'd have to choose from the pool. Um, Danny Boy, I did write it, and it did get greenlit, so I was able to kind of do my own uh, my own film. Did AFI give you a budget to make it? We had to raise the money. Uh, the school gives us a base. I think it was $11,000 to start with, and they cap our fundraising efforts at 65000 And we, yeah. we did raise the, the maximum. So we so we rose we rose sixty five thousand and and then of course you know just being a student film we were able to get massive amounts of discounts and things for free across the board. I mean if if you had to really pay actually pay for this full out, it probably would have cost like you know three hundred thousand dollars. I would imagine. What was that fundraising process like? Um, it was difficult because we weren't allowed to do crowdfunding at all. Okay. Um, because they wanted to the, the fundraising to be to mimic like a professional how you'd raise money for a for a, a real movie, and so we had to like reach out personally to people and get get the stuff. My producer was fantastic; he was able to get us you know twenty five thousand dollars from Siren Studios. Um, they needed a tax write off, so it was good for them and very good for us because um, the school is a not for profit. So it, mm. it the the donations do go to the school and then it funnels to us. Um, so this helpful. I mean, there was also a lot of like, you know, $10, $15 and, you know, here and there. And I just pretty much emailed every single person um, possible and Facebook messaged every single person possible. Again, because we couldn't just do a, you know, a crowd crowdfunding kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. So it, it was individual reach out. And so it was very time consuming, but also then became personal. And I think the success rate of people actually giving money was much larger because of that. Um, though that money though they did like there was a lot of restrictions on uh, w- some things that had to be spent on because they did you know make us follow strict like industry standards uh, for production like more than I, I mean there's like tier one tier two movies like you know three and a half million five million dollar movies that didn't have don't have the stuff that we had um, because they can't afford them and so we were forced on so we had to get trailers for all the actors um you know so this is like you know you think like it's a short student film like give me a break like but they you know wanted you know us to have it as like professional like it was a major motion picture and and shooting it um and like and having these these set you know our sets were like very large footprints um and so our crew size our crew size was like i think about 50 oh wow okay um 
you know all all the department we had to we had to sh we had to have people assigned for every single department there was like you know they they so at the end of that first year when they greenlit the script and then we had the summer in order to kind of like workshop the script with, with a mentor a little bit and then we got into our production meetings um come the fall and they lasted you know six months of like meeting every month and there's being like and sometimes more and then with different mentors we had you know production mentor uh and then we'd have to meet and show presentations to production design class cinematography classes um and then do all this and everyone would ridicule the approach why what's the choice why are you why are you choosing to shoot it in this type of aesthetic how does this mm -hmm. kind of follow through with it and and so every single little thing was like nitpicked in a huge way and so it actually made it really hard uh, and but the the reason i know that they did this um you know at the end of the day they told us just like you know and also they, i felt like they steered us in the wrong direction on purpose sometimes and because mm -hmm. they they want us to be able to uh purposely like you know have to articulate why this is the way it's going to happen and yeah you said you think this is a better way but this isn't your movie and you don't know that and but when you have like the producer of back to the future who's who's telling you like oh this and that you're kind of like everyone's like yo we should listen to this guy he knows what he's talking about and i'm just like yeah he might have knew what he was talking about when it came to like back to the future but this isn't back to the future this is danny boy this is your movie. Yeah, yeah and yeah. like and so in order for these people to like you know stop chomping at the bit on you uh you really had to you you had to articulate your argument very well and that's what they were trying to train you to do and they know a lot of people kind of in the, when it came to their thesis had had failed to a certain degree because of being like, you know, totally overwhelmed by this process. But they're like, wouldn't you rather fail here instead of like a network or studio giving you notes and like pushing you in directions that you don't want to go in and then just like giving into their every every little thing? Or are you going to like actually come up with a good argument and get them on your side? You know, yeah, yeah. lessons in standing your ground like that. It's uh, very important. Yeah, but also, too, it's just like you can't just stand your ground in a way of like, you know, being like, oh, this guy is unreasonable to work with. Or we were right. saying this and that. It's like, no, I'm like, I have a good reasoning why I'm standing my ground. And and if you can articulate that and get people and lobby for that idea, then you can get them behind it, too. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is, an important, I think, an important part about the education there. How was the film received? Um, it was great. I mean, it didn't like it didn't win like a student academy award. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I it's it's funny. I I hated the film for a really long time, mm -hmm. um, and then I kind of like I think I came around on it. That there, you know, there's some like really fun parts that I'm really proud about uh, with the movie. Did you send it out to any festivals or anything like that afterwards? Um, yeah, I sent it out to a few festivals. Uh, the problem with uh, most AFI films, they're traditionally known for being very long. So mm -hmm. they're more than like they're you know they're considered a, a time frame of like what would be called like a medium format instead mm -hmm. of like in the short format. So most festivals just aren't going to take them. It's like Danny Boy's twenty five minutes long. They can program two or maybe even three films in that in that time slot. Um, right. So it's very difficult. So unless the film is like you know absolutely spectacular uh, at that type of running length, it it's definitely makes your festival like uh, chances very difficult. Now, I know you also have made a number of short films. Um, I'm not sure the, the chronology of them here. Um, I know you've made I Love New York, Spectacle, Forever, and then the film I met you on, or not met you on, but I first worked with you on, on in terms of your own work, uh, It Is. 
It is, yeah. So yeah, it is was like one of my first narrative. I had done some documentary work before that. And that was okay. my first kind of like narrative film. Um, it's very like art housey, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was definitely more of my kind of like original Aronofsky influences that were like yeah. poured into that idea. Um, and then I had, I had dabbled in a few different things, um, and but I. It, it kind of slowed down. It's tough, like when you're doing an AD career, working 80 hours a week to make films. So I was trying to learn more by working on short films on the weekend, doing other things. I had a short film that you know took me like five years to finish. I'm not, not five years, but it was like three years to to really kind of get it completed um, during that time. And then when I went to AFI, um, I are in the first year is but they're practice films they're meant for in-house critique so this mm-hmm. way there's no stakes to them and like it's no one's ever going to see this and this is just for practice and that's where I made uh forever and spectacle uh we're okay, in that okay. period those are AFI, yeah. yeah so those films are technically like they're locked in the library and never allowed to see the light of day um mm-hmm. but you know if you go to the library at AFI you can see any any director's work from being in school there that's Again, not supposed to leave the library ever, but um, I I took them um, for my yeah. for myself. <laughs> so I did those, and then I did Danny Boy, and then after Danny Boy, because I was first, I was so unhappy with the film originally. Mm-hmm. That's when I was just like, I'm gonna go make this. I love New York, and just like I don't need any money. I don't need sixty five thousand dollars and and a bunch of trailers and stuff. I'm just gonna go like run a gun on the streets of New York and make this fun, fun super short uh, comedy. Uh, I love New York, so that's exactly what I did. And I love New York. It, one thing because the you know the time it's ten minutes, uh, it's like the perfect programmable time, and right. um, and so with that film, uh, you know it 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 played at uh, over a hundred festivals and won a ton of awards. Well, it seems like perfect for that kind of for the festival circuit also because like you said, the length is good, um, and without giving too much away, it kind of has a flip ending. It wraps up very nicely. Um, so I think it, it's, it fits like a, like a glove into the, the festival circuit. And also I love the film. That's not, that's not to say, you know, taking away anything from, uh, from the, from the project. Yeah. I mean, I think that shorts operate, I mean, better just as like, you know, their moments that you can't think of them as short stories. And I think I did for a long time. And I think that's why it's mm. always been difficult. And it's just like actually feature films are short stories. They're just, they're simple stories told complexly. So they really are short yeah. stories. And I mean, there are their exceptions. They're like, they're like, you know, a born on the 4th of July and, and Forrest Gump are not short stories um, at all. But Mm-hmm. For the most part, most features are. So therefore, shorts are really just like quick moments. They're like, you have to think of them as like punchline jokes. And I definitely tried to fulfill that, you know, with I Love New York and just kept it definitely. simple. And it's got that twist. And and I always loved uh, Midnight Cowboy. And so yeah. this was like my version of Midnight Cowboy in a way. <laughs> definitely. I see that now. Yep. Jumping back for a second. I know we're kind of jumping around here. But uh, going back to Spectacle and Forever um spectacle in particular i thought the sets were really awesome um can you tell me about those sets and how you constructed them yeah so um my production designer was fantastic uh and we had gotten this we'd gotten this guy in this abandoned theater in downtown la to let us shoot there it was right across from the globe theater i'm trying to remember the name of it they actually apple just bought it and they're turning it into an apple store but it's like this haunted it was in the haunted theater famous haunted theater in la and it was like one of the original silent movie theaters and and paramount had opened it up um for like big premieres and stuff and so it wasn't like a playhouse which actually the stage was quite limited because it was meant for watching movies 
Mm-hmm. But it was really beautiful. It was really old. It was super decrepit. Uh, but we felt like it could really nicely play into what we were trying to do. But we only had the school gave us uh, th- three days to shoot these projects. And again, held wow. us by very like the major restrictions time wise. It was a 12 hour day. That's it. We weren't allowed to go over. So I had three 12 hour days and we couldn't really afford because of shooting at the theater and doing all this stuff to have another location. And I really needed this bedroom, which was super important. So the lobby of the theater, um, we had turned into a bedroom. I was wondering about that, that those big uh, wooden walls and everything. Yeah. So my production designer, so there's an opening um, of like the doorway and she created a plug to make it look like windows, like French windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we did like a, a painted backdrop outside of it. They give it like a bit of a, you know, um, tree kind of feeling outside. Um, but we only see it like in the dream portion. So it has this kind of like a more theatrical aesthetic, which is opposed to anyway. Um, mm-hmm. so we, yeah, so we turned this like lobby into a bedroom, which fit perfectly. Uh, so it was great. So we stayed in the same location the entire time. And then the rest of it, we had shot either in the theater itself, um, the main theater or in some like behind the scene rooms and the boiler room of the place. And we had just kind of like used out every space possible, uh, to create like a dressing room and, and tons of other things to make it work. Um, so it was all about saying the same space. And then she created a bunch of um very like german expressionist kind of like set pieces because it was all about you know this idea of fairy tales and how and how her father had read to her all these stories so in her mind the whole thing about the story was like man if i was blind like how would my imagination look Mm-hmm. And and I felt like if someone is like feeling their way, like would you see things? Would would proportions be like right, or would you be seeing them in your head in in a very skewed way because you're trying to put the pieces together and from feeling yeah. them? So I was like, so the doorway that she walks through is like this very almost Tim Burton esque kind of you know like skewed thing because like she mm-hmm. t- you know she's she's only as far as like her her touch can take her. Um, and she's never seen color either. I'm like, how could you imagine color if you've never seen color? So that's why every her imagination was always black and white. So this was like all the concepts that went behind all of this. You know, it's just keeping them all grounded in all the stories that her father had read to her, and the way that she could a blind girl could possibly see the world um, in this moment. So it was just a, a good creative use of space. And again, those sets reminded me of Nosferatu. Um, and also, have you seen the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of that um, and a lot of like, you know, the German expressionist stuff. So I thought the, the sets were just really cool in that film. Yeah. I mean, she did. A, my production designer did a great job, you know, putting those things together and creating these things. And then also and then reaching out to a couple other you know places in town. Um, J.R. Backings had some really interesting like circus fairy tale kind of like painted backdrops that she was able to get uh, for free from them and were able to kind of put them up. And utilize them again it's like when you're a student you can get away with a lot and get a lot of free stuff you know people want to support student filmmakers um in ways that's just like today i would never be able to get any of that stuff for the cost i mean that film cost three thousand dollars and, wow. and the school did give us the budget for that but again the budget also part of that budget we had to rent a box truck we had to get like super shelves installed on the truck we had to rent certain production supplies so about half of that automatically went to transportation costs and needs and 
and then the, and then catering we had to have like we were not allowed to have like pizza we had to have like real catering um mm-hmm. with everything and treat it like a real set even with these practice projects and so you're like three thousand dollars isn't a lot but and then about two thousand of that is spent um on just these kind of production basics yeah yeah, yeah. um i want to move on to forever i don't want to spend a ton of time on spectacle and forever just because uh since they're not public part of the the hope with this podcast is that people will go back and find links to your films and be able to watch them sure um and you know see exactly what we're talking about everything but in forever uh just to touch on it that you said that the baseball scene that you edited has gotten you a lot of work uh led to editing and directing jobs and i just rewatched that i think that scene is awesome um the acting and you know intercutting to the the footage of the baseball game is like perfect uh both in the editing and the direction of the actors yeah, thank you. I mean, I'd gotten a lot of inspiration from this scene from two different sources. Like one would be like Gus Van Sant, like Goodwill Hunting is one of my favorite scenes. Um, so there was that, and there was also in the fighter. Um, there's also he's smoking crack, and 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 both of these scenes kind of operate in the same dynamic of like there's this high energy, this high energy, and then suddenly the rug gets pulled out. So in Goodwill Hunting, you know he's like you know there's all this fun energy and they're running around the room and he's like and pudgy runs the bases and he has the homer and then he's just like and he's like did you rush the field and he's just like you rushed the field too right and he's like no i didn't rush the field i wasn't there and he's like what he's like no i was in a bar having a drink with my future wife and then he's just like he's like you don't regret like you gave away your ticket to like one of the most famous baseball games in, in boston's red sox history and he's like no i met the girl i was gonna like love and marry and and i don't i don't regret it for a second and so the tonal shift is just i love tonal shifts within like a scene I think they're very challenging to do to make believable Mm -hmm. and here it does it really well and in the fighter he's in the room and he's like you know shadow boxing with one of the guys Christian Bale and he's like and he gets some and it's intercutting with the Sugar Ray Robinson fight and he's there and they're working it out and it's just like it's so it's so crazy and the guy hits the ground and he steps over him and it intercuts with the step over and then suddenly it's just like and then the other guy comes up and puts the crack pipe up to his mouth and he just kind of like takes this big puff and you're just kind of like whoa and so yeah, yeah. these these incredible shifts using this type of this tool and this dynamic and so that's where I got the inspiration uh, to to create this kind of moment uh, with it. I see that, yeah, it's very cool, and that scene is just very fluid. Um, and then when you just said uh, tonal shifts, it made me think of like music and key change changes and things like that, also, uh, which I think kind of has the same dynamic feel in a way. Um, but I forgot to ask you also just about music. Um, even in Santa and Training and most of your other stuff, music plays a very predominant role. Uh, what's your process working with composers, or how do you go about choosing music? You know, I, I I try to look for references that I feel like are fitting. Um, you know, and I look and I do them very early, and I tend to like I make like a playlist, and while I'm prepping for the shoot, I listen to the music that I feel like is gonna at least you know be tonally and within the realm of how I'm gonna do the music later. And so I spend a lot of time in pre-production thinking about this because to me it's it's just like it's going to determine you know a rhythm for things. And so, like, you know, when I'm directing, you know, rhythmically, I want it to, to feel like the song almost and feel like the piece of music. Even if a scene doesn't have music in it, too, I want it to have, like, the rhythm of the feeling that I get from this music. And so it's important. And for my composer, um, you know, when I do get to that process, I you know, I share that playlist 
uh, with the composer. And uh, w one of the things I'm very fortunate about, I mean, my composer is one of my you know closest collaborators um, and longest collaborators, um, Katie Jarzabowski. She's an incredible composer. She's one of my best friends. And for Santa in training, I mean, I went and I stayed at her cabin. She lives up um, in Northern California. And I stayed there for, for three weeks. And we, we kind of like went through things. We would talk about stuff. She would like work on a cue. She'd kick me out of the room for a bit uh, so she can do her own thing. And then we'd come back in, we'd talk about it, work it out, and keep moving forward like that. And then, so she's really incredible. She's very versatile. And she's done she's done all my music to date. And she just really kind of like, you know, I think she just shares some of the same sensibilities. And also because she's a friend, she's also knows like when to call me out on bullshit or or to challenge something. And that's one yeah, thing I yeah. always look at in a collaborator of just kind of like I don't want someone who's just going to do everything I tell them. I want someone who's going to I want someone who's going to be like, hey, but what about this? Or did you think about this? And like, I think this is really fitting because of that. And and so it's like great so I want to be having these conversations as much as possible and then even when it gets to the recording process you know I'm always and I know other directors that just like they don't spend you know this type of time with their composer and they're not there for the recording and they don't do any of this but I'm always there for all the recordings of the music and because again I'm like feeling it out in the room at the recording session when we get to that because I've only heard it at this point like in the temp cues like you know these are all just temp like she's written them on her computer using temp instruments and so now it's like there's a there's this idea in the recording that like brings life into all of it like real life mm -hmm. and so when when we're doing a cue and at the end of it she's like how'd you feel and I was like well like she's like just tell them yourself she's just like good talk to the musicians and it's like and she's like you're gonna you're gonna express the feeling that you are want from this instrument better than I can you know what I mean because it's the story that you're telling so I'll right. go in and I'll paint a picture of something and kind of and get them to get there and it's a fun process and and I think a lot of composers I don't think would honestly I mean I don't really know but I'm not sure if they would you know be so open to a director talking directly to the musicians you know um i mean it's not like i'm telling them you know i'm not like you know micromanaging how they're playing but when you're just trying to get get past a feeling uh, and especially it's like you know with the i love new york it's constantly i'd be like i wanted it to sound like it was coming from some band on a on a street corner like right, and exactly. so i was like i wanted it dirty i'm just like make it dirtier and she's like oh she's like yeah why don't you guys like you know spit on the reeds and like you know like tap and and usually it'd be something in a clean recording you'd want like you don't want this type of like reed reverberation to be right, in yeah. it you want it to be clean and so they started doing stuff like that and it, it gave it like this little bit of like you know raspiness in in some of the woodwinds um yeah, from yeah. doing stuff like this and including the mix like when it comes to the music mix as well I'm also there kind of like following through with these ideas and then, you know, they're, they're doing things to the, to the sound that was recorded, uh, to, to give it more of this, this feeling. Um, yep. so yeah, music is, uh, music and sound is, is super, super, super important to me. Um, and just to clarify, when you're working with her, she's composing, you're giving her ideas, she's composing, and then she has a band or she has hired musicians that she works with to actually play the music? Yeah, so she, like, and it depends on the budget. I mean, like, how many, like, some of them will be like, oh, this, listen, the synth sound is really great. We can't, we can only afford, like, I feel like with the budget that you've given me, we can do, like, this instrument, this instrument, this instrument. I think this would be great. And then I'm like, oh, what if we do this? Like, on Santa in training, 
you know, there was one cue that, you know, I really saw this, the training montage section. I was just like, I really think, you know, like real drums here are going to, and she did a lot of the drums for the rest of it, which there wasn't a lot of drums in them in the, in most of the, the tracks. So mm-hmm. a lot of that was like synth and then all of the like woodwinds and brass and violins that was all real. And, but for there, I was just like, and she's like, listen, we don't have, we're not doing this. She's like, this is a drum kit kind of thing. And all the other drums are like timpanies and that I've like mm-hmm. synth. And she's like, I don't know if it justifies the cost here, and because we're we're pretty like we're pretty stretched the budget and so when i showed up uh you know on the day and she and she had given me the like hey you have to be like open i know that you're gonna want the world but like the budget's not that big and like i just want to tell you from the top and i'm like i totally understand i totally get it and because she knew that i'd be up her ass about it so and then i show up to the recording session and suddenly there's like double the amount of musicians than that i was expecting and there was like a drum kit for just the one cue and i was like what's all this and she's like what and i was just like this is way more than i thought you know from what we talked about she's like yeah do you think i'm like gonna let it be anything less than the best possible and and so i i definitely know that she took like part of her fee and put it back into the music because she cares a lot and those are also the type of people that i like working with it's like i it's just like for myself i mean i put a lot of my own time that i didn't get compensated for doing a lot of the animation work for it so and she felt the same way and she knows that doing good work is is the way to move forward that's awesome when you when you work with people like that that really care about the pro the end result they care about the quality of work and they're willing to sacrifice whether it's their time or money or whatever to make the outcome the best it can be. I mean, those are the best collaborations. Absolutely. Um, Christian, you're in L.A. now, right? I am in L.A., yeah. Why did you move to L.A.? Just for, for work? Well, I originally moved to L.A. Um, for AFI. And so oh, I, for AFI, okay. So I moved out here, and then I ended up staying out here. Um, since then, I used to talk a lot of shit about L.A. Um, <laughs> for the first few years, and then it just kind of like, you know, it started to become home. It's also like where the business is. I mean, not a lot of stuff shoots here anymore, but if I'm going to go on a general meeting at a, at a studio or pitch something, this is, I mean, this is where you have to be. Um, yeah. if, if you want to be a successful um, director, it's like, especially as a young, it's, I'm sure like, you know, in my career, you know, in a few years, you know, hopefully my career has been in a better place. I can go wherever I want and, mm-hmm. and be fine. But starting out, you know, people don't know who I am and I'm like, I'm still banging down doors. What do you think about LA versus New York? Um, and is it kind of indie scene in New York versus Hollywood scene in, in LA? Um, how do you see those two comparing? Uh, yeah, I mean, ex- exactly that. Um, it, it's funny with film, uh, like with directing, uh, not as much so. I think of it a lot of times like in terms of acting, like and I get actors I know from New York. They're like, oh, should I move to L.A.? And I'm like, well, do you want to be an actor or a movie star? And they're like, well, I'm not right. understanding the question. I was like, listen, if you if you, for an actor, <laughs> you move to L.A. to become a movie star. But real realistically, there's a lot more acting opportunities in New York all the gotcha. time. You could be doing theater. You know, it's not just like in movies um and you can still get cast in those movies you might not be cast as like the the main part um because that major the big casting is going to happen out of la um Mm -hmm. so that's i think where the big differences are um when it comes to filmmaking i think that you know there is a great you know there's something about new york that's just incredibly inspirational you know what i mean as a storyteller and it's such a unique place and those are things i miss about new york a lot and la is like you know which more kind of like 
it's it's just different. It's a different kind of thing, and, and people here definitely are talking about the business all the time. And and sometimes that could be like, I I just want to talk about the art, you know, of it, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, and it, it can be kind of like a little overwhelming sometimes when you just you want to go to a bar and have a drink, and every single person that's like around you is talking about some deal or it's something at the studio or some script they're writing or whatever, and it's just like. Uh, I mean, like, usually when I hear a story about directors who move back to New York after establishing themselves, it's also like, you know, like Ron Howard lives in New York and he says the reason is because no one bothers him there. It's like, he's like, if mm-hmm. I was in LA and I went to a bar, I'd have a bunch of people coming up to me with scripts. He's like, New Yorkers, like, they like mind their own business. And yes, they might recognize who you are, but they're not going to come bother you. Right, right, right. So right now, what is your, your day job like? What is, what is a regular week look like for you? Um, Right now, uh, it's well. I mean, it changes constantly depending on what I'm doing. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But since I just finished up uh, Santa in training last month, you know, and then it's just really trying to tr- transition back into you know different different mode. And right now, it's like writing mode. And then I also teach. Um, I teach a class at uh, LA Film School Narrative Analysis. Uh, oh, cool. okay. And so that's like that's that's part of my week. So I spent a few hours doing that, and then the rest of the time it's uh, going on meetings and and writing. Oh, very cool. Um, where do you see yourself in ten years? Where do you see your career going? Um, I hope in in ten years, I you know, and and making more of the films uh, that I really want to be making. Um, uh, possibly uh, developing TV work as well. Um, but also, you know, also too, I want to be able to shape my career in a way that's also conducive to like, uh, family life as well. I mean, I hope that mm-hmm. within the next 10 years, I, I've started a family by that point. Um, and, and I want to, and I don't want to be like on a crazy grind, uh, every single day with that. I want to actually like raise my, my kids. And so I do want to be able to establish myself as not just, uh, directing, but also, you know, as a writer, hopefully. So, and then and when that time comes and I want to take time away from directing, I can also be full-time working and involved, uh, but just in a different capacity that gives me more at home time. Yep. Very cool. What is it in general? Do you have any kind of thesis, uh, that, that is some message that you you try to get across in general in your films, do you think? Um, you know, I think this is always a hard question for anyone to answer. I think people that study someone's film probably can answer it for them better than they can answer it themselves. Um, so I, I think I'd have to leave that one up to you. That's fair enough. Um, and then final question here. Why do you make films? What, in, what motivates you to make films in general? Why have you done it for all these years? Um, I, I think that like, I, I think film has the ability to kind of like, can make people see something differently uh something about the world differently um ask themselves like a question uh, about where they are or where they're going or or who they are and and you know if i can get somebody to kind of like if i can better their day or make them cry or see something different i think that's i think that's a great that's a great thing to do with life you know with your life helping people 